Trade Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a, a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm one of your hosts, Rick Snyder, and I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge, the author of Decisive Intuition, and um, also co-host and co-founder of one of, I think, one of the best podcasts out there, folks. That's right. We celebrated uh, our year anniversary on Earth Day, and um, it was such a very powerful show uh, in terms of really putting attention on our planet, on the Earth, on sustainability. And we have this amazing panel of youth activists and people out there who are leading the next generation of consciousness around how we need to be relating to our world in a different way soon, like now. In fact, it was so popular and we didn't get to all the details and the depth that we wanted to get to. We decided to have a part two. And that's really what today is all about is part two around net zero 2050. Yeah, that's a really important goal. But what does that mean right now? What does it mean of how we need to start showing up right now? Um, and before we go even further in that, I want to introduce my amazing partner in crime and co-host, Af Malhotra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Um, wonderful to have all of you back on the show for this second episode. <clears throat> the first one was tremendous, and we were compelled to bring these uh, fantastic people back onto the show again. And of course, uh, myself, the co-creator of this uh, amazing podcast, and uh, personally involved in a whole heap of philanthropic uh, adventures. I was going to say ventures, but actually they're adventures, frankly. And also technology. I run an AI technology company that has um, helped me to understand the implications of human, digital and social at a very different level. And uh, I want to sort of throw the ball back at you, Rick, to start the proceedings um, because there's a lot to cover and we want to get deeper this time. Um, and hear what the, the team has to say. So back to you. Uh, let's kick off. Let's crack on, as I say. Let's crack on. Okay. <clears throat> so let's start with some, I know um, a lot of our, our audience knows you now at this point, but there's also always new members who don't, who are listening right now. So let's just do a really laser quick, um, just to hear a little bit about your biography, who you are, what you care about around this topic around sustainability and climate change. Um, so let's just go around. Let's start with you, Laura. Just let's hear a little bit about what are you up to and uh, where, you, where are you coming from? So let's start with you. Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited to do part two. Uh, thank you again for letting us um, yeah, use your platform. Um, so I'm Laura. I'm from Belgium. I'm 15 years old and um, I am the chair of the Sustainability Council at my school. Um, and as a, it started off as a, school, as a school project that I wrote a book called If Nature Had a Voice. Um, it's a very short book, but I got a lot of like positive um, feedback from it. So I decided to sell it. And with the income, I planted like sequoia trees. Um, and I also wanted to do more. And I, um, me and my dad, with his new foundation, we um, brought together 12 girls from all over the world to, who are also climbing climate activists and around my age, um, including Luna as well, to um, work on a project together and um, yeah, also just learn about ourselves and become uh, the best version of ourselves. And um, I'm also going to Antarctica in November um, with the Climate Force um, Foundation, which is, yeah, to kind of experience the effects of climate change, mm -hmm. but also uh, like do climate workshops and learn from amazing people. Um, so I really want to be like a leader in um, sustainable development. And yeah, it's kind of it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Vivek, let's go over to you. Hey, so again, thanks for having me back on again for part two. And it's great to be surrounded by such great panelists as well. Uh, so I'm Vivek Badiani, and I'm currently studying for my PhD at the University of Cambridge. Uh, and I'm in the Department of Chemistry. Uh, and in brief, I work in energy research. And in brief, what we do is uh, essentially we take carbon dioxide, and we turn that back into fuel using solar sunlight or just solar light uh, as a means of trying to catalyze the reaction. 
Um, so one of my passions is obviously sustainable development, sustainable fuels. Uh, but on the side as well, I'm very, very passionate about agriculture and farming. Uh, and even more so, I'm very passionate about trying to bring more uh, of a sustainable outlook to things such as agriculture, because of course we have a growing population and we need to feed the world. Uh, but something that I think is slightly overlooked is needing to feed the world more sustainably. Mm. Uh, that's among my passions. Mm. And it's great to be back again. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Luna, let's, let's turn it over to you. Hi, everyone. My name is Luna Abadia. Thank you again so much for this opportunity. Really excited to, to tackle more in depth about this conversation. Um, yeah, so I'm 16 years old. I live in Portland, Oregon in the United States, and I'm a high school student. I'm currently studying environmental science in the International Baccalaureate program at my school. Um, and as for climate change work, I'm involved in a variety of activities. So I'm the um, I'm part of this Audubon Youth Activist Conservation Team. I'm part of a Student Climate Justice Leadership Council for my city. Um, I'm part of Younga, which is the youth constituency of the UNFCCC. Um, and then I'm also the founder and executive director of my own climate organization. So we're called the Effective Climate Action Project. And basically we work to promote effective and specifically systemic solutions to climate change. Um, utilizing youth leadership and then also these workshops we run called climate simulations. Um, and so, so far we've run around, I think, 13 workshops with groups ranging from student groups to adults and educators. And we're reaching youth from around the world. I think we're up to seven or eight countries um, and gathering more members each day. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a process. I'm still getting started, but I've been doing a lot of amazing work that is really inspiring me to just do more. And definitely you all are such an inspiration as well. Thank you so much. Great to hear from you. Uh, Flavio, let's, let's turn to you next. Thank you so much, Rick. And as always, I say, it's, it's a pleasure and also always an inspiration to be surrounded by people who are doing so much great work in climate change and, and solving the world's problems. I'm Flavio. One of the things that I do really well is I map complex problems to cutting edge technologies. In my, in my day work, I work at IBM Research where I'm working on discovering new materials for capturing carbon out of the air um, using artificial intelligence and all of the advanced technologies that we are developing. I also co-founded Global Shapers Manchester. We are part of the Global Shapers community and we empower young people to have an impact in the world and to do projects that have local impact in their communities and then scale them up at a global level. level. A pleasure to be here. Great. Thank you, Flavio. Last, uh, but definitely not least, Beth Eden, love to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me back. And it is a pleasure to be on this panel with so many inspiring minds. Um, I've definitely been even more motivated since our last talk. Uh, I'm currently still working with UNMGCY. That's the United Nations Major Group for Children and Youth. Uh, Luna actually uh, sits on one of those teams for Yongo for the UNF triple C. So we help um, young people be part of the political process of the United Nations and the 193 uh, global states. Um, so I actually work mostly with financial mobilization in, in that sphere right now, trying to get youth to move away just from volunteering to being paid for their work and to help release the funds to, to those right people. Um, and then on the side of that, um, uh, I guess actually before I, I got into that space, I was doing research assistantships in disaster risk reduction communication and environmental psychology communication about how are we speaking about these issues to, to people online and through digital means and how can we shift those narratives to something that's more positive and uh, highlights solutions. Um, but the more exciting thing is that I'm currently running for nomination in the next federal election um, in Canada for the Green Party and so I'm helping to develop my campaign and trying to create more vulnerable conversations about issues that are uh, being experienced in Victoria and across Canada and I think the climate space is a very very important one to speak about right mm. now so thank you for welcoming me back. Amazing well wow, I'm all just blown away by the level of talent articulation skill that's on this call um, so we're really honored to have you all back again. Um, so let's dive right in. Uh, there's so much to cover. One of the things that I've been thinking about is motivation. And 
I think two things that can be challenging around how do you stay motivated around something around climate change? It can be difficult when things are very abstract. It can be hard to have a personal connection to it when we have a lot of abstract numbers or abstract figures or uh, theories. It can be very hard for an average person to feel connected and grounded to something, as well as when something's very far off in the distance, like, oh, 2050, we got to do this by 2050 or 2080 or whatever it might be. It can be hard to feel that motivation or that connection. Um, so I'm just curious to hear from your own personal experiences. How do you continue to stay connected to your motivation for what's important, how it can make a difference, how to not lose the, the plot or lose the story? Um, how do you do that in your relationship with the things that are facing us around climate change? Who wants to take that on? Luna. I can, I can start. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so I'm 16 years old. I mentioned that before. But with that comes, you know, college applications. I have a high school life. I'm not just running my own organization. You know, I'm making friends. I'm doing all these things that a high schooler should be doing. Um, doing extracurriculars, leadership positions. And, and so with all of that, it's often hard to find motivation. And so I, I think I really like understand what you're asking and um, have experienced it a lot. Mm. It's, it's hard to separate yourself, your daily life from the climate change part of you um, or the mm. climate activist part of you, but it's such a critical thing to have. And so I think for me, my motivation comes from the fact that if I don't keep doing these things, I'm going to fall back into fear. Um, I, I think I started in fear. I started in fear that mm. we're not going to be able to do anything to stop climate change. Um, and the only reason I can get out of that is to actually channel that fear into actual projects and actual um, change that I can be making mm. myself. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about the fact that we only have around 10 years until our climate phase is sealed. Um, and in 10 years, you know, I'm not going to have a family. I'm not going to be a real adult. I'm still going to be, you know, learning in school, you know, maybe getting my first jobs. And so I don't have time to wait around. And clearly the people in power aren't doing enough. And so for me, that's my calling that like, well, I have to be doing something. And, you know, preferably I wouldn't be doing anything because I want to have a normal life like a kid should. But in, in this moment, like we need everyone mm -hmm. taking their taking their um, chance to actually join the movement. And so for me, that's an incredible motivation to know that like every person matters. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Flavio. One word that I use a lot and in the way I think about this is deep optimism. There's kind of three types of seeing things. One is the defeatist, we can't do anything. One I think is shallow optimism is we can do this and we are going to solve it tomorrow. We know that climate change is a hard problem. And another thing that I said always to my teams is you, we either all win together or we either all lose together. Like there's no competition in climate change. We all need mm. to work together to move each other up, to build each other up in what we have to do. We need to collaborate. We need to find the kind of institutional ways for institutions which are very hard to collaborate simply because they have different regulatory frameworks for those institutions to be able to collaborate, etc. So this is where my deep optimist comes from. I know the problems are hard and they're very multi-layered from the scientific problems. We need to discover these materials. We need to give people the options. We need to give people the materials. We need to give people the technologies in order to solve climate change. All the way from the political issues, from the regulatory issues, people talk a lot about systemic change, system problems. It's a very, very complicated system. Mm -hmm. But if we all work together, if we all manage to somehow align and the internet has given us a really good opportunity to align, then we can start shifting those things in all of those different points and in all of those different directions. So I think this is where my deep optimist comes, for, comes from, from my personal hope and also from trying to analyze a little bit the problem at the larger scale. Hmm. Can I ask you a question just on that? Um, it's a nice way of framing it. When you think about deep optimism, um, the way you describe it, it appears that you have a methodical mind, you're sort of problem solution, breaking it down into its discrete parts, which is great. Um, how do you bring in the hearts and minds element into it? Because motivation is, they say people make um, 
rational decisions for emotional reasons. So the emotion is a big part of this. I think we touched on it on the last um, episode. How do you, and you could answer that or whoever else, but how do you find the uh, passion aligned to the purpose and sustain it? Because um, we need to learn from that as well, as in Rick and I and the audience, we need to try and keep the engine revving. You know, we're fortunate we do this weekly. So we keep we keep that momentum going, but many of us don't have that luxury. So tell us a little bit more about that, those that part of it, the emotional side of it. How do you keep that going? I'll say very quick, and then I'd love to hear from all the others. One is, I think, a word that Obama used as well: having the audacity of hope, having the audacity to keep hope. I tend to be quite a hopeful person myself, so I just like feed yeah. into that. And secondly, secondly, it's true being able, being part of the right communities where we can support each other. I think being able to have that, being able to have people who think similarly and who can help each other, like move each other up, then that's, I think, a good recipe for success in my mind. Beth? I think you talked about a good point here about how a, a lot of what we're talking about is this new thing that we're starting to label, which is called eco-anxiety as well. Mm. And so, as you know, I spoke about in the part one, people are welcome to listen to that one, um, that I, on the side, make documentary film. And we recently spoke with a researcher who is working with a global network of researchers who are trying to understand eco-anxiety. And the reality of it, we're actually all feeling eco-anxiety, but we're mm. just not able to label it yet. And mm. so I think really being kind to ourselves and realizing that it's a collective feeling of feeling um, demobilized and anxious and incapable of changing these things is a good step because awareness is always where it starts. And so I can see these conversations starting to come up and I hope, and, and I, I think we should start connecting climate to mental health as well, because actually if we look at the system, we created climate change out of ill health. We did not value our environment in a way that is healthy. We, we have disproportionately affected people, uh, vulnerable populations, mostly people uh, such as in indigenous communities and racialized communities by opening up uh, certain uh, factories or polluting water sources close to their communities. So our, our perspective of health and climate change are actually very, very aligned and I think Thinking about it in that way helps us to shift our mindset and, and realize, okay, we're only human mm -hmm. and humans can only do so much. And really it is mental health is the root of it. Um, and I really liked what Flavia was saying as well about kind of this collective thought that we're not alone in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what mental health brings to us. I post a lot about this on my social media. I've struggled a lot in the past with mental health issues. And I think being open and talking about these things in a vulnerable way um, collectively in mental health spheres, but also in climate spheres, helps to, to bridge the gap of, of this anxiety. Mm. So I think it's a really interesting topic and I would love to, to interview someone in, in that sphere too. Mm. I just want to piggyback on that really quick because I've actually never heard the term eco-anxiety and it just had me think about the five stages of grief, um, if you're familiar with that as well, where the first stage is denial and how many people are denying the anxiety they probably feel around the climate changing and the powerlessness that we might feel around that uh, from a daily basis and how there's a lot of climate deniers out there. And that's probably the first reaction is I don't even want to deal with this, right? I'm going to deny this. And the second stage is, you know, actually getting upset and angry about it. Right. And then trying to bargain and like, okay, what if I cut back here, but then I can do this. Um, and then there's actually grief and you actually finally hit grief. Right. So I'm just really, I never thought of it in this way. But I wonder if we're going through that process as a human family around our relationship to um, what's happening right now and the eco-anxiety that is always there. And more of us are getting more in relationship with that now. What do you all think about that? Yeah, I think um, it's also important to like understand that we're right now kind of in a turning point of where we can have we can have a choice and co what COVID has shown us I think is how quickly the whole world can change um obviously now it was probably for a different reason because everyone um 
yeah, kind of got threatened by it. Um, and that's why like you all had to do something because it had to do with safety. Um, and I think a lot of people don't really understand how threatening it is for everyone. Like everyone's going to suffer from climate change, whether they like it or not. Mm. Um, so if everyone like, yeah, has that mindset, then I think it's, um, yeah, then I think as a, as just the whole world, we kind of sometimes don't realize how much we can do and how much we can just change. Um, yeah. Mm. There is something um, I want to throw into the mix, just giving a, it's triggered in my mind talking about um, shallow optimism, deep optimism, and, and also naysayers. And for any of you in law, maybe you can start. Um, I was on Amazon earlier today, and we can call out any brand because this is straight talk live. So, you know, it's okay. Um, I was on Amazon and an advert came up saying 100% green by 2025 with a box, you know, one of those parcel, Amazon parcels. And my first reaction, uh, to, I don't know what your first reaction is to that. So imagine it in, in front of your mobile phone that's come up. My first reaction was of cynicism. And, um, and the re it probably wouldn't have been. Um, and uh, it's my perspective has changed as I've studied this area a lot more. And I've realized that a lot of these goals are um, not quite what they should be. And there is always some chicanery and trickery under the goals. And that's what institutions end up doing 2050 carbon neutral 2025 all green uh, semantics, we don't really know what that means. Um, and sometimes I start thinking, well, is it because a certain generation of people who are former corporates and have grown up in a certain way, are used to putting goals and numbers together, we've been trained to do that, you know, um, even in, even in my generation, I'm wondering how how younger people people like you look at goals um do you treat goals and numbers the same way as i'll just say me because i don't want to throw rick into it but um so you can say <laughs> us yeah say us <laughs> um, do, do you do you get fixated on 2050 carbon neutral 1.5 degrees or have you got something else going on in your head where you've reconciled a that it's not going to happen or you are dead cert that it you'll do everything you can for it to happen um or is it something else i just wanted to know how you look at goals because the 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 generation i'm talking about looks at goals a little bit differently i think um i'm throwing it throwing it to your law you can start maybe because you've triggered that in my mind and then um, others can pick up yeah i think for me, it's always, I also am very like critical when people say, okay, by 2050, we'll do this, or by 2040, we'll do this. Um, on one hand, it's obviously important that businesses and people set those goals and think, okay, that's where we're heading and make that vision so that they can move towards it. Um, but on one hand, you also have to think, um, first of all, yeah, if you're actually doing it or if it's more just the idea or something you're promoting, um, that's obviously a big difference. And mm -hmm. I think for me, a goal is very important, but for it's more important to see things actually happening because even if we reach below those like two degrees in 2050 or 2100, it still means a lot of changes coming. So just two degrees isn't enough. Um, I think it's more important for me at least to see like the the change and actually something that's happening instead of the goal or the outcome of the change, mm. I guess. Mm. Uh, Vivek. Vivek. And then Beth. Uh, I think that's a really important point that you made up. Um, I think setting goals is clearly important, right? Because it sets you on the right path to being, actually, uh, to, to being able to focus on something with an end goal in mind. And you set yourself the challenge or your company's challenge of achieving it by then. But I think there's a bit of a difference because in the corporate world for you, if you were set a challenge to you know, achieve something by a certain date for your company or for whoever you're working for or with, and let's say you miss that deadline, you you know your your head is on the block, right? It's it's you who's in charge of that, and if you miss that, it could cost the company money, or it could cost you money, or cost someone money down the line, and therefore there are some repercussions. the uh, The problem with with setting these sort of climate change goals of you know achieving this by twenty twenty or Amazon being one hundred percent green by twenty twenty five, is that if it if it wasn't reached and, and that target of being green one hundred percent by twenty twenty five wasn't reached, it doesn't seem like there is a lot of repercussions involved in that. 
it's completely fine for Amazon to then all of a sudden in 2024 to push it back by another four or five years because it's right. fine. It's, if anything, it's going to cost them money to reach right. that target. So unfortunately, I think unless there was the same kind of urgency and repercussions available in missing green targets, then I think we might actually see mm. gold being more, I guess, more defined by what they're supposed to be, something that should be reached. Interesting point. It's a very good point. Fair point. Beth, did you want to tag on to that? Vivek literally took the words out of my mouth. I think the word is accountability as well. Mm, So, yes, I I think goals are so incredibly important. And if you want to have a short history lesson, the Millennium Development Goals, which were created by the United Nations, and then later the Sustainable Development Goals, are a global framework that allows for collective action towards a collective future. And I think that is a really important thing having a goal between many bodies and agreeing to something is an incredible way to transform the way that conversations are started and the way that action plans are developed. That being said though, they're not enforced. Like the SDGs are not legally binding. And so governments can really do anything they want. And unfortunately, the Paris Agreement has seen that too. Like Mm -hmm. for instance, if we're looking at Canada, um, they just put um, a goal to be carbon neutral by 2050. Um, however, if you look into their fossil fuel subsidies, they're actually expanding oil and gas sector mm. to more, more than it has ever been since mm. the 2015 agreement. Mm. So it's like, there's one thing to set a goal and mm. to communicate a goal, but the next thing to practice it. So I think Vivek was, was absolutely on cue there that actually part of implementing a goal is accountability mm-hmm. and i think maybe that's where you know lawmakers comes in or whatever and whoever can talk to that i would be i'd love to hear more yeah. flavio no other point of accountability and mm-hmm. maybe put a framework of how we can think about this because when you talk when you when you give the story of the 2025 goal the way i would approach that is as a scientist i would dig down and understand how that goal is to be achieved mm-hmm. what is the rate of change because we are here, the goal is here, we need to be able to draw a line between where we are and the goal. Mm-hmm. Is the actions that people are doing on that line to the path of the goal? So this will be one way of thinking of whether that goal is achievable. And secondly, as well, in terms of accountability, we now have some good tools to be able to have global accountability. Satellites can start to be used to measure the amount of CO2 that's being emitted at every point on the planet. So we can start Um, having an independent accountability framework, in Mm -hmm. a sense, which looks at countries, which looks at places individually of how much CO2 and other greenhouse gases they emit. Um, Secondly, you've got places such as the Climate Action Tracker, which looks at whether national policies Mm. are on the right path towards uh, 2 degrees Celsius or towards 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so these are starting to happen, not necessarily as legally binding frameworks, Mm -hmm. but as technology helping people measure whether Mm -hmm. we are on the right path. And that Mm -hmm. information can be used by young people, by everyone here to be able to keep people accountable. That's a really great idea in, um, around some of the measurements and tracking of that and technology. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of even, you know, when you have a water bill or an electricity bill, there's accountability because you see how much you're using and there's a cost. And so the more electricity or water you use, you pay more money. Um, and so that has certain people change their behaviors once they realize, oh, wow, we just doubled, you know, December, what it was in uh, September. So what other ideas do you all have around ways that we can hold ourselves and each other accountable on a micro and macro level? Any other thoughts that you're coming up against in your research, in your practice? I think it's also important. I think Beth also mentioned it of there's something that's like like law enforcement that's proven to not always be very oh sorry um not always be very efficient but um for example if you have smoking um people realized scientifically that it's not good for your body or for the people who are around you so there's laws on that and right now people still smoke obviously but there's also the educational part of we learn in school smoking is bad uh, so don't do it um and i think you can compare that quite well with also climate like um action and 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 policy because if there's more laws to say 
you know, you can't do this, uh, you have carbon taxes, for example, or, um, yeah, kind of any type of regulation that's better for the environment, it might be harder for or less convenient, I guess, for the population, but it is what's necessary because right now people aren't changing by themselves. So law enforcement is also, I think, necessary right now because we are running out of time. So if that's the only option, then sadly, that's what we're going to have to do. Do you, do you think, uh, just going back to the 80-20 uh, rule or 90-10 or whatever the, the, you want it to be, um, 80 to 90% of the emissions come from a small select group of countries in the world. Again, I'm taking a very um, framework-driven approach to it to, to tackle the problem uh, methodically. So do you not believe that the metrics need to be re-examined? Because if you want to change behaviors, because this is what we're talking about, changing behaviors, mm -hmm. through different behaviors, you, your actions change. <laughs> better actions lead to better outcomes, eventually, uh, over a long period of time. Do you all not believe that um, there needs to be a re-examination of uh, all of the layers of how each country needs to be held to account? Because accountability mm -hmm. at this point just, uh, just cannot be blanket right because it's kind of unfair right if you think about it not not to say that one country needs to catch up and be terrible with carbon uh, emissions and only then will it be uh, behaving itself mm -hmm. the point i'm making is the the ones who are contributing the most and we know who those countries are uh, surely the mandate the rules of the game the metrics need to be focused on those countries the satellites to flavio's point brilliant idea, need to be honing in into those nations that are contributing the most amount of carbon emissions. Another perspective is what I'm throwing at you. Discuss. Beth. Beth. I think it's so weird raising my hand. Yeah, you just go for it. <laughs> my in school. No, really. um, I think what you were saying as well is, is about putting a price on emissions and the issue is people are going to continue their behavior, as Law was saying, if there's no price associated to it. Mm -hmm. The price of climate change, for instance, in Canada is not being realized by the policymakers that are creating these policies and helping us subsidize the fossil fuel industry. So if there's no cost, you continue doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And right. so I think that is a really key point here is that we have to amplify those costs. And I don't know if that's like an illegal aspect and a policy aspect, maybe in corporations, like, but for instance, subsidizing the fossil fuel industry is actually helping this industry grow. That's not adding a cost. It's very, very opposite. It's adding an incentive. So mm -hmm. I personally think Canada's, Canada's got it completely the wrong way around. And we're one of the, the highest contributors in the G8, actually. We are the highest contributor. So we have to shift the way that we're, thinking and producing and uh, amplifying these impacts towards the climate crisis because we're incentivizing the pure industries that are contributing to the main source of the problem. And another one of that actually, which actually Vivek might be able to speak to if you're into agriculture is we're also subsidizing agricultural industries. And another big part of that is, is foreign direct investment. So again, countries like Canada are directly investing in, for instance, we did a, a documentary on the palm oil industry mm. and there is mass deforestation in Indonesia, which are creating these like carbon hotspots pretty much. Um, and there is a great benefit for, for countries like Canada to invest in those types of industries. We're gaining a lot of profit and there is no negative externalities about that. And there's no cost. So, it's how it's how we shift these industries, agriculture, fossil fuel. There has to be a cost. There mm -hmm. has to be a cost associated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just want to add on to that. I think on the <clears throat> national and international level, accountability is partly about you know public pressure um, and political pressure, but then also definitely, as, as Beth, you're saying, incentives. Because in the nature of the agreements we're making, we can't only be limiting and restricting human behaviors to help the climate, but we also need to be directing people and industries to these new options. And so like in the case of a coal or a carbon tax, you need to pair that with energy incentives for renewables and move mm -hmm. that past workforce into new environmental jobs. 
And so I think that's partly why like global summits like COP26, the upcoming conference of parties after the Paris Agreement um, are incredibly important for this accountability because they serve as this like periodic reevaluation that allows countries to see the global action that is or isn't being taken. Um, and then when you combine that with an expectation that, of course, all countries must prioritize climate action, I think it sets in motion this chain reaction. And, and we've seen that with car companies, like, or even with the recent NDCs that are appearing after um, President Biden's Earth Day summit, like all these these countries are starting to, and companies are starting to create these goals. Um, and while goals are just the first step, you need to combine that with a plan. Um, I think accountability is part, is all of these factors combined. And so when you have the biggest countries that are contributing the most to climate change, um, taking a stance and actually showing that it's something they're going to be prioritizing, um, you can show leadership and then that causes others to wake up to the issue. I just want to touch on one more point. So, sorry, go on, Vic. Yeah, I just, I just think this whole idea of incentive is really, really interesting. And currently it seems to be a bit too disparate. Um, yeah. I've seen a really, really interesting report on um, you know, the hydrogen economy within the shipping industry, for example. And there was the head of this entire shipping consortium. And throughout it, what he was discussing was the possibility of you know, making shipping, uh, so transforming shipping diesel engines from using diesel into using ammonia as a fuel, which is green and sustainable, which is great. But his argument was that as much as he'd love to, and the, you know, he would love to see more uh, people in the shipping industry moving over to, to ammonia as a fuel instead, the problem was that there was no incentive for it. And that's because diesel was so cheap and there was no carbon tax levied on them that was that drastic enough because shipping is important for the world, obviously. So countries aren't really going to tax them that much. But he was actually imploring governments and consortiums to actually increase the cost of using fuel so that they would be forced to move over to ammonia sooner. But the problem is that for him, he has no choice, right? I mean, you as well, have, for example, right? You, you have a company. Um, you know, you're expected to make certain revenues, especially when you can pay off to your other you know, incumbent competitors in the same field as you. Now, if I'm a shipping company and I'm making certain revenues, I wouldn't choose to increase my costs because I would then be comparing my own company revenues to my competitors, right? But if there was a tax involved where everybody's in your entire industry, everybody's cost increased slightly, and there was a new bar set for the costs, everyone's revenues would be readjusted. And then when you now compare everyone's revenues to everyone's competitors' revenues, you kind of rebalance what you expect your revenues to be or your profits to be, sorry, your profits to be within your incumbent industry. Mm -hmm. But it all goes from the start of, is there a level incentive for everyone to switch over initially by artificially inflating certain costs? And I think, unfortunately, that's something that hasn't been touched on yet. And it hasn't been addressed enough in things like the shipping industry. Mm -hmm. And as much there is there is a want for change by the people inside these industries, there's no incentive because the cost structure is still mm -hmm. leaning towards continuing using diesel. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. Actually, you make a really good point. If I think about small to medium-sized businesses, I don't know what the situation is like in, in parts of Europe or in Canada, for that matter. But uh, in the UK, at least, there is nothing uh, from a point of view of tax rebates um, or any incentives to, to enable a CEO or a leader of a business to say, stop, need to do this differently now. And uh, no matter how conscientious you are and how aware you are, you, to your point, you're still running a company, you have to pay salaries, you have to keep profit levels high if possible. And if you have investors, the problem is compounded because their, their need for growth is very, very different, which brings us to conscious capitalism, inclusive capitalism again. Um, but you got us thinking because, uh, and I, I don't know if you all have stories from your respective regions. But at this point, I can tell you running my own company, the only tax benefit I have is what the UK calls R&D tax benefit. So if I spend more money on technology development, I get a lot of it back because I show the, the this cost. But there's nothing related to environment, nothing related to, to climate at all. And there is nothing in the pipeline that we've been informed um, of. So you make a really good point. And in, in fact, therefore my behavior, as in not saying me because I have a company, but our behavior won't change unless these policies are, um, or incentives are put forward at every level uh, in, the, in the chain. That's a really important point that you've raised because it's not only your company as you as a, as a co-founder and uh, the founder of a company, but every future person, future entrepreneur, future anybody who starts a company they're not going to have the incentive to, from the bottom up, to grow the company from the roots to be sustainable from the get-go. They're just going to build a company as the way it should be so far and the way that it's done. But if every new, you know, new founder comes in and builds a company 
with incentives for it to be sustainable from the start, then at least every future company that's built would have more of a sustainable aspect to it. Currently, there's no incentive for that. So every company that comes out is not going to focus on that. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a yeah. Point. I also like to just add on to that um, with just, I think we often like when we think about money and like the economy, we often like, I think, forget that it's all to do with the demand. And I think that also gives me quite a lot of hope because it means that the power is really quite a lot with every individual because if every indiv- if everyone would now choose to buy an electric car and never um, run like buy diesel again that industry would completely collapse and that gives me just a lot of hope of thinking as an individual like as a consumer you're actually have a lot of power over how the industry kind of works so while it's quite like a distant thing and it obviously it's a system that completely needs to change it also gives me quite a lot of hope of thinking what I buy in the supermarket or which buy I, I uh, which car I buy has quite a lot of impact definitely if we all do it together jump in Flavia go for it oh. I'll let Beth because she raised my hand before and then I can I can go, go I got it. it we need a buzzer a <laughs> 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 um, uh, great point by law too and I, you you mentioned somebody asked a question like what is it like in your respective countries and I just wanted to mention this which was a really amazing positive in Canada but then unfortunately the subsidy was pulled back I mean the incentive was pulled back there was a 40% rebate on if you buy an electric vehicle Mm. in I can't remember when it was it was when Tesla was Mm -hmm. launched and it was really big and honestly on the island it's so incredible to see so many Teslas but the only people that can afford Teslas right now are the people that have you know the higher wage bracket Mm -hmm. um, which is very unfortunate they're often the older population they're the population that you know the climate impacts might not be impacting them as much right now and maybe won't feel the effects um the younger population needs to be driving those electric vehicles um but i i found that really positive and to see so many people on board when they got that 40 percent rebate it's unfortunate it's not the case anymore but i was listening to a video by elon musk and apparently electric vehicles are going to be cheaper than the average fleet that are on the road right now fuel combustion vehicles as of 2025 so at least now even the you know the lower income population can afford to to contribute to this uh this electric vehicle switch so i'm i'm excited about that yeah good point love you and i love to see how we think about all of these different pressures because we have pressure from the regulatory side Mm -hmm. taxes or tax breaks Mm-hmm. Carbon tax or carbon tax breaks, which help companies justify to their board, to their shareholders, to everyone, to say, hey, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have also the customer pressure, uh, which is we would like to buy things because we are eco-conscious. We like to buy things which have reduced carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. And I'll get back to the point of accountability that we were making is how as customers, we can be smart customers mm-hmm. because you, t- you talked that story about this net zero by 2025. As a customer who I want to choose a brand, I need to see which brand has a, says it's green, but also is truly green. Mm-hmm. So for that, I need to understand what are the supply chain emissions mm-hmm. of that brand. Mm-hmm. Here's a very interesting thing, which I just recently realized by reading a book on supply chain emissions. Buying a tomato, which is locally grown, but in an electrically heated greenhouse is actually more CO2 than getting that tomato shipped from another country because of all the electricity that's being used right now and electricity being generated by fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So supply chain emissions going from, say, the farm to the fork is a very complicated business. I don't have the knowledge to be able to do that for every product that I do, but mm-hmm. I would love to have the labels. You know, like nowadays, a lot of products are labeled as green, red, or yellow as how healthy they are, right? Mm-hmm. For us. And that allows us to be like, eh, I'm going to pick green things. Maybe it's not the perfect science, but it's still better than just picking anything that I see. I would love to see these kind of labels mm-hmm. on food, or on everything, really, That's from an cool eco idea. point of view. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool idea. Um, I want to remind the audience, please ask your questions. We got 15 minutes left. So please, if you have anything and you're watching here, send it in. If you're watching us on Facebook, YouTube, or live on our Zoom Zoom channel here. Um, one, one area I want to just start to uh, drive us toward is 
what do you think are the areas that are most important for us to focus our efforts on right now? If 20, and we've just talked, talked about 2050 is an, it's an aim and it's an aim toward a direction that's going to be helpful. We can all agree on that. Um, so what do you think are actually the efforts we need to be taking now uh, from the different sectors and the different areas that each of you touch? It'd be cool to hear from each of you. Yeah, well, I can maybe start on this one. Um, actually, um, in the project I was talking about before called Our Future, um, we got this um, workshop, which Luna gave. Um, I'm sure she can talk more about it than later. Um, and it's called the En-ROADS work, like the program. And you kind of see what the most effective solutions are. So like, um, yeah, carbon removal, as we talked about, and um, like afforestation. And there's really just a graph that you can see how much does those different policies, how much does that impact it? Um, and I think what we learned from that was that um, yeah, artificial like carbon removal, which is obviously what Flavio and, and Vivek are working on right now. Um, but also, yeah, afforestation. And I guess that's like those scientific things. If we can really understand what is the most effective, I think that's definitely what we should invest in because that's what we need. So I don't know, Luna, if you have any other things to add about that workshop. Yeah, I can speak to what I've learned through the model. Um, just to give some background, the En-ROADS model is designed by MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative and then also Climate Interactive. Um, I encourage anyone listening to go search it up. It's en-roads.climateinteractive.org. Um, and it's a great tool to, to work with on your own for anyone from policymakers to you know the general public. Um, but what I've found is that I think when we're making these international agreements, we need to be aware of the different timelines that um, are behind each of the policies that we're, that we're making. Because <clears throat> when you have things like afforestation, the, the planting of new trees, um, that's going to take 20 to 30 years after you've actually planted those trees. And so if that's something you're going to be relying on for those carbon sinks and, and sequestering carbon, you have to be doing that now. Um, and things like changing the energy grid and our infrastructure, those are long-term um, projects that need to be tackled now. Um, when you have things like <clears throat> a carbon price, like that's incredibly impactful. When I've seen, what I've seen of the model is that if you, um, if you tax carbon at $245 per ton of CO2, um, that, that's a lot, <laughs> that's like, it would be hard to achieve, but if you were able to tax um, one ton of CO2 at $245, that would, that would in itself bring our current predicted temperature from 3.6 degrees Celsius to 2.7. Um, and so that's one of the most impactful things. And I think that, you know, comes back to the idea of how incentives play such an important role um, in shifting these systems that we've created as humans. Um, but also I've seen that the model things like renewable energy is important. Um, renewable energy is, is tricky because, you know, producing more renewable, renewable energy is not going to change anything unless you're actually displacing the fossil fuels. It's all about the fossil fuels. Um, we, we need to, to actually tackle climate change. We need to be um, addressing coal, oil, and gas. And so I think it comes down to these like um, really key inputs and outputs in the system, how many tons of greenhouse gases we were missing, we're emitting, and then how many um, sinks, whether that's natural or technological, we're, we're using to take out carbon and sequester it. Um, so I don't know if Vivek or Flavio want to speak more to that, but that's what I found in the model. That's great. Anyone else want to speak to what areas do you need, we need, do we need to be focusing on right now? Um, I think I think the as much as I like consumers are definitely involved and all of us do have a responsibility towards you know trying to make sure that we can focus on ourselves and our habits to try and reduce demand for certain goods. Um, I think overall looking at in my field in my PhD, for example, we're looking at the chemical industry itself, for example, um, and trying to bring about more of a circular economy to the chemical industry is really, really important. So it's obviously a very, very large contributor to to emissions, to CO2 emissions. And there are a whole host of chemicals that are needed to, uh, for so many, so many different products that we will consume. Um, but it's it's a linear economy at the moment. So for example, a, a chemical is produced most likely through the, the petrochemical industry. And you take that chemical such as ethylene, for example, which is one of them, and use that ethylene and then you throw away and discard the product. And then the ethylene is wasted, so you have to produce more. And then the ethylene has to be reused, uh, sort of used again. 
Uh, but there is a way where you could actually break down certain chemicals that are used. Um, so for example, at the end of the life cycle of a certain chemical, you can break it down into, into uh, sort of monomers, we call them, which are the individual substituents, and you can restitch them back together in a chemical process or in a, a sustainable process using so, uh, sunlight. And these are some of the ways which I think, um, I think if industries such as the chemical industry, which is a very large emitter, if they were to start to sort of re, I guess, reevaluate their supply chain, as Flavio mentioned, but at this point in terms of just looking at their whole processes and trying to make it more circular, um, we could definitely help towards at least more goods if they were to be held accountable and have this sort of like a green sticker on them. These companies would have more of an incentive to try and make sure that their systems are more circular so that they're producing more green products, which then we as consumers can consume without any of these sort of the bad ethics and the bad eco-anxiety that comes with it and so forth. I'd love to just add on to that because it's uh, it, um, in like the book I was talking about, If Nature Had a Voice, um, that's one of the things I um, also wrote about uh, that in nature you see everything is circular, like you said, like mm -hmm. if you see a cycle of a tree, um, like it obviously in summer, like it has the leaves and then in the winter it doesn't have the leaves, but then that's also really vital for it to stay alive and for the organisms around it to stay alive. Mm -hmm. um, and what I did was I like kind of compared that to humans and how we're living. And the, the truth is we're not going into because we think growth is the only way forward. And that's like positive. Yeah. Um, but at a certain point, if a tree grows too much, it doesn't leave any space for other trees. For example, mm -hmm. it takes away all the sunlight. And currently we're doing that and we're taking all the resources and all the water from the roots of the tree until there's not going to be any left. And then there's not really a point. So we need to also understand that, you know, as, as humans, it's not only positive to grow, but it's actually more positive to stay in, in, in the circle and also then give back to nature and, and kind of help each other in that way. Yeah. Well said. We have, we have, we have a bunch of questions there, Rick, uh, that have come in. We should definitely tackle them. Um, uh, can you pick it up on your screen? I'm just trying to see if I've got Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, this is one we covered a little bit. Let's go into a little more detail just around, you know, obviously, the, as you are all demonstrating, the next generation is really well averse with, much more averse with uh, climate change. And on top of that, much more so than any previous generation. So, and, and businesses are slowly, more slowly, but starting to get more aware of their responsibility. What about the older generations? We mentioned that earlier. Um, what do you think needs to be done to draw the attention of the older generation and what they can do because a lot of them still have a huge, a lot of power influence around the whole world. Um, sometimes they're still in those seats of presidencies or CEO ships or whatever it might look like. So what can they do and how can they change at this point? If anything, um, if this is, or are they just going to be a burden on the next generation? It's like, how can we shift what needs to happen there? And are you having any success stories in your own worlds around that? Uh, Laura, can you take them to Antarctica with you when you go? <laughs> take, take all of them. I'd love to. <laughs> On, honestly, this is like, I'll, I'll say on to Vivek, this is the thing I wanted to say in my head it was, give yeah. them an audience to Laura and Luna uh, to, to be able to see the world through their eyes. Mm. Not even through mine, like I'm, I'm old compared to Laura and Luna, through their eyes. It's like, <laughs> I would love for like, uh, maybe we, some of the CEOs are watching this podcast, like mm. listen to their voices, man. Mm. So I think a lot of it does come down to um, experiencing it, right? So um, I can't remember who it was in part one, it may have been Laura, but um, you, sort of mentioning that, you know, at a young age, going out in nature and sort of experiencing nature and sometimes experiencing the harm that we're doing to nature and seeing that we're taking it out of this slick, mm. this not cyclical circular system and sort of seeing the detriment. Unfortunately, I think it's a benefit that we all live in lovely developed societies. But there is a downside in that we hide a lot of our impact. So, you know, we, we all use plastic. Unfortunately, it's hard for anyone to completely shut up plastic at the moment. We're all doing our best. You know, we use plastic and you know, most of us recycle, but there are those that don't. But even if you don't recycle in our countries, you don't see the impact. The, the plastic just disappears and then you get to use more plastic again. Mm -hmm. But if you go to other countries where I guess um, my recent trip that comes to mind is India, there is, you know, you could walk on the street and there would be plastic everywhere because there aren't, there aren't recycling facilities available. And I guess the impact that that would have is that more people in India might be more averse to using plastic because they see the impact. They see that the plastic is building up everywhere. They see it in the oceans. They see it on the streets. And 
In fact, a friend of mine did tell me that they use less plastic in India because they just see it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I do think, and going back to the idea of trying to get other generations to really try and see what we see as a younger generation and you know, trying to actually do the bit and having, giving them more motivation is potentially trying to expose them to the impact of mm-hmm. how we're living and how, how it's affecting our, our nature and our ecosystem. But, uh, that was another thing. It yeah, goes thanks. back to the point around r- rational decisions, emotional reasons, uh, really, because I think when you talk about India and you compare it to Western economies, we're very protected. You know, we really don't care if the, if the electricity or the light switch is on or off because it's always on. As soon as scarcity kicks in, like we saw with the pandemic, suddenly we go into survival mode and we start to preserve. We hoard. We saw that with toilet paper around the world, um, you know, and other other things. But yeah, you make you make a salient point. <clears throat> that, that looks like you had an idea of something, yeah, to share. Yeah. Um, I love everybody's points, and I do think it is important to show impacts. But it's also important to look at what we already have and. For instance, the most wealthy nations are contributing to climate change. And why they're wealthy is because they they have the money, they have the profit, they're sitting on a big... Unfortunately, we've profited off of these issues, so now can we redistribute our finances? And climate finance is kind of... Some people think it's quite a boring subject, but I think it's a fascinating subject. And what I would love to do and what I'm wanting to do is to, once we, uh, you know, make the older generation more aware, which I believe they are, um, it's about having those conversations about how they're shifting their wealth. How is it that they have, what is their pension plans in, which is a really big hot topic right now in the climate finance world, is where are their investments sitting? And a lot of people's investments are sitting in uh, fossil fuel stocks and bonds and whatnot Mm -hmm. and so we have to shift the way that we're investing that money Mm. um and also our you know our our daily expenses as well and that goes back to our individual actions with with purchasing different food um is that local and whatnot so i think looking at what we have is a good and important thing and i can only say that speak out of privilege not myself but a lot of these older people can speak out of privilege and so it's about putting your money where your mouth is i think (laughs) Yeah. I guess you I guess you have to press the right buttons. I was thinking about it from the corporate standpoint. Imagine, you know, Luna was saying I'm 16, I've got a lot to think about and how do I keep myself motivated? Law said something similar. Beth, you're talking about the next phase of your um journey and then Vivek uh, when you finish your PhD you're going to go off and do something with all of this um you know these brilliant innovations and the mind you have and, and Flavio you're in IBM for now, um, but who knows what you're going to do tomorrow because, you know, the mission is getting stronger. When these sorts of forums happen, mm-hmm. we double down on our sense of purpose, don't we? Mm-hmm. One thing that comes to mind is you're also going to be employed, maybe or maybe not, in the future. And what hurts, employ- you know, what hurts corporations is when they don't have talent. You know, if the next generation of talent is demanding certain changes, uh, I don't want this table why is the light why haven't you got green energy why is this the, the way why isn't dni t- taken care of you're not going to attract the best talent in the world in the next 10 15 20 years leading up to 2050 that will hurt the corporate institutions because they need to keep the engine going in and uh, keep their shareholders happy so i think that's another part which we we haven't discussed but you all have a lot of power we all have but you have a lot of power even beyond this forum which is you're actually um, going to contribute to the productivity of the world some way, shape, or form mm-hmm. down in the future. And some company will hire you, hopefully, right? And if you demand that, uh-uh, I am not going to walk into your organization until you meet my demands, mm-hmm. this, that, and the other. And, and that, if that's a revolution, there's a spring of sorts that happens, a climate spring uh, from young people. I think that's the only way that the old generation, the older generation will change, frankly, because many of them have buried their heads in the sand. Uh, And I know some of them, actually, and they're not on the call today, unfortunately. But um, it's going to be you, um, you know, each one of you that's going to drive that change. I'm I'm certain of it after this episode as well. And, and, uh, you know, all power to you guys. We have one more question, though, before we close, which is... um, a uh, question from a, a regular guest who I will I will um, I will name him Chaz. 
uh, we have different ways of pronouncing his name, but Chaz has a question. He says, uh, reports have been circulating for a number of years about prosperity being the key to fighting climate change. What does that mean? Well, having enjoyed relative prosperity, uh, how do we sell this to developing and underdeveloped uh, to, to developing and underdeveloped nations? Uh, what measures has each one of you, panel members, taken to sacrifice your own prosperity in the name of climate change and sustainability? Boom. Last question. Who wants to take that? Beth. I would argue that a lot of young people are taking a lot of their time and time is money in a capitalist world. So I'm just going to say that we they are working countless hours, more than even full time jobs. I've seen this in my yeah. work. And right. so, yes, it's not money in terms of hardcore cash, but time is money. And that volunteer work makes a ridiculous amount yeah. of difference. So we owe it to them financially and time wise. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how I would say I was, I've been contributing. Mm. I'm hearing some clicks on that one. Um, I would say uh, from my point of view and all of my peers here in Cambridge. Um, so I'm currently sitting in the chemistry department right now. And we are sponsored by and have been for a very long time by British Petroleum, so BP. So if you walk around to any of our labs, our lab coats will have BP on them. And obviously BP have a lot of involvement in here. They've funded a lot of the department. Um, and so what they also do probably pretty much twice or three times a term is they come into our department and they like to sit there and bring us in and they give us loads of free pizza, loads of free drinks. And they essentially try and recruit um, a lot of us. <laughs> I'd have to say, and this is, I can attest to all of my peers from everyone I know here, the thing that we're all doing in our generation is avoiding them like the pay. We're going for the free pizza, but we definitely don't stay and take any of their jobs. And, <laughs> very, very and I really hope no one from BP is watching this and then chooses to come off. But I'm very, very proud of the fact that everyone I know who's come from my lab or this department and everyone that I've met in Cambridge who works in this field, they're so passionate about going the other way mm -hmm. in that they are sacrificing a very, very, you know, a very high paying job in a very, very high paying field and industry, which 20, 30 years ago, working for BP was equivalent to working for a bank when you come out of chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. um, but now it's changed. Nobody wants to go there and work for them, which mm -hmm. in my opinion is a big sacrifice to a lifestyle that could have been had. But it obviously goes to show, you know, how much pushback there is against that industry and how, you know, what it does stand for and what it does do in terms of a negative externality to the world. Mm -hmm. It's seen by many and it's seen as something that should be avoided as a career. Mm. And I would say that's quite a big sacrifice from, from my peers, which mm. I'm very proud to. If That's I great. can just add for last, I know we're running out of time, but um, it's also important to realize for people who are watching that it doesn't always have to be a sacrifice mm -hmm. um, because there was this video which says, okay, what everyone can do is think, okay, what needs to be done in climate in the climate crisis? So like the action that needs to be taken, what are you good at? Mm -hmm. But what also makes you happy? And if you can find a balance between that, mm -hmm. then if you actually enjoy doing it, and that's what I'm also working on is, yes, I'm now decided that I'm going to study in the climate field and maybe not exactly what I thought I was going to do before. But if I can find something in climate change that I really like to do myself, then it doesn't have to be a sacrifice. It can actually be something that completely opens your, your mind. And as a bonus, you're doing something good for the environment that's going to help the next generations. So yeah, it doesn't always have to be a, a burden. I like that. That's good. It's a good reframe. Um, hope you're listening, Chaz, and I hope you're satisfied by the answers. Um, and so uh, we're wrapping up here. I'd like to just do a really quick laser round. Where can people find out more about each of you and where should they go? If you have a website, if you have a book, if you have anything you want to mention, let's do a quick lightning round. Let's start with you, Flavio. Sure. Uh, Flavio.xyz, that's F-L-A-V-I-U dot X-Y-Z is my home on the internet, which links to everything, including my newsletter, where I think about these things out loud and interact with lovely people who would like to think together. Great. Beth, how about you? You can find me on social media, Twitter or Instagram at Beth Eden underscore. I'm also on YouTube too. There might be more content coming out in the future on that. So. And if we want to vote for you, where should we go? <laughs> you need some <laughs> <of> you. <laughs> but you might be able to volunteer. Who knows? So maybe okay. <laughs> Thank you. Luna, how about you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, on Instagram at luna.abadia. 
um, and then also my organization's website, which is effectiveclimateaction.org. Great. Thank you. And Laura, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, I think Instagram is the best, which is just my full name. Oh, I think you're muted. There we go. Uh, We can hear you now. Yeah, yeah, just on Instagram, um, Laura Van Onsum works. And yeah, I think I have my link for to fund for Antarctica. Obviously, it's quite expensive. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for for anyone who would like to sponsor me or just donate. Um, Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And then Vivek. Uh, so if you wanted to find me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's probably the best way to reach through to me. Um, it's something that I didn't mention at the start, but um, I also have a company that I've co-founded, so EcoSense. Uh, so you can find more about uh, our startup in agriculture at eco-sense.info. Um, but moreover, I'm very proud of the research that my lab does here in Cambridge. And so if you wanted to find out more about the research that we do, which has really cool Lego animation videos and really cool sort of outreach videos, which is simple to understand, you can go to reisner.ch.cam.ac.uk. So we're called the Reisner Lab, R-E-I-S-N-E-R. And you can find out more about our research there as well. Great. You know, on behalf of Af and I, we want, and our whole team, we want to thank you all so much for your time, your energy, your passion, your inspiration, uh, your research, the hard work that you've done, leading by example. Um, you are all are true leaders, and we're proud to have you on our show um, keep continuing the good work. We want to definitely stay in touch. We also hope that you continue your, maybe there's some collaborations that are birthed from even this event from each other and getting to learn more about each other. There's ways you can continue to support each other's networks and what your missions are in the world. So please keep in touch and we would love to have you back down the road. And uh, thank you so much for being part of Straight Talk Live. And just super quickly next week, we're going to be talking to Dale Kutnick uh, from Gartner fame, and he's going to be talking about how technology innovation can address today's major stumbling blocks. And we are going to get into climate and environment and how technology can be impacted through that, um, as well as um, in, uh, employment inequalities, income inequalities, and things like that. So it's going to be a very powerful talk next week. Thank you all again. Keep straight talking out there with you and your, your mates. Over and out. Great Talk Live.